When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. So joining me tonight, I have Mark Edward Cato, who is a union representative, who is here to talk about why unions, what they are, and why you need one if you're a worker. Mark, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Tracy. I really appreciate the opportunity to come onto your show, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about unions. I have had the pleasure to spend about 15 years working with unions. I started off as ground floor steward. I moved to a chief steward. I moved up to a labor liaison with United Way and the AFL-CIO and I'm currently a staff rep. And it's been an honor to see what a difference unions can make. To get to share that with somebody in an audience that you know, I don't know, knows a lot about unions or not, but anytime I get to talk about them, it's my favorite thing to talk about. Well, I mean, I think we've been seeing a lot of strikes and unions in the news lately. There's been almost like a resurgence of it. And so there's probably a lot of folks who don't know a lot about it that are seeing it. I know that in the past, there were strong union movements. We've talked about it in some of the prior episodes, some of those really bloody, violent events that happened so that unions could even exist in this country. And then after a while, they seemed to sort of subside somewhat. You didn't see them as much. And now we're kind of seeing them again, I think. Things really sort of seem to go in cycles with the union movement. People seem to wake up when conditions get bad enough and when employers treat people wrong enough that basically they've had enough and they don't want to take it anymore. Thankfully, (laughs) now you don't have to face down the barrel of the Pinkertons who are coming to ensure that you're paid in company money, that the company has the prices just high enough to keep you in perpetual poverty. But, you know, you still got to fight. That's why we exist now. And I think people are waking up to if they join us, we're going to fight on their behalf. Yeah. And maybe instead of turning to the union when things get dire, keeping a good, strong union movement in place so that things don't get dire. When I was a teenager, I waited basically until I was homeless to go ahead and decide to join the military. Almost everybody that I was in the military with, it was kind of like their last ditch effort. But when I did, it was a fantastic thing for me for the most part. But if I had gone in with bright eyes, knowing what the difference would be, I wouldn't have had to get that far down before I made that decision. 
Now, that's not to advocate for anybody to necessarily join the union. It worked for me. It may not work for everybody else. Um, ex excuse me, to join the military, not the union. Everybody should join the union. <laughs> but you don't have to be in dire straits to join a union. You just have to be motivated and understand what it is and why it would make a difference for you if you did join a union. Hey, so why don't you tell me what is a union and why do workers banding together make a difference today? So luckily today, there are some entities that clearly define what a union is, how you can join a union, what protections you have, all these sort of things. Because I'm in Ohio, I'm going to talk about what your protections are for the public sector in Ohio. But nationally, if you're in the private sector, you can form a union by certifying through the National Labor Relations Board. There is a process by which you gain momentum by signing cards or showing enough support at your workplace. Once you have majority support at your workplace, you can file to form a union with the National Labor Relations Board in the private sector. You will have a vote and then boom, you've got a union. You've only got one step from there and that's to get a first contract. Very similarly, if you have a law like we are lucky enough to have in the state of Ohio, that is ORC 4117. You also have a process by which you can very similarly get majority support at your workplace, file to have a union come and represent your workplace. And then there's an election at the CERB board, which stands for State Employee Relations Board. And if you have majority support, you get a union. Next step is to get a first contract. And even in the public sector, in the private sector, everybody's covered for this. There are some states out there where there's actually no law that specifically allows for public sector workers to form a union. There wasn't a law here in Ohio prior to 1985 for us to form a union. But just to give you an example, we've had one in my city of Cincinnati that was there since I believe 1942 or before then. So where there is no law, we still have the power, which is our skill and the very real need that everybody has to have workers. And so we use our worker power to make sure that we get a contract. When you talk about the contract, what is that? So a contract is a legal document. What most people would probably think about this as is you have a contract for a lease with your landlord if you are renting. That lease has certain conditions by which you can contractually break the lease. There's rules around when you can get out of the lease, when the landlord can get out of the lease. There's all kinds of different things under there that set out clear, defined rules in the contract. We have something like that, only it is for the workers. And so you may have like a personnel manual at your workplace if you don't currently have a union. You're probably also going to have a personnel manual if you have a union. But the difference here is a personnel manual, your employer can change at any time. They could actually decide if you're in a, a right to work state to make a rule where if you're late three times, for example, without any input from you, you're automatically fired. They could make a rule that you have to volunteer depending on the state that you live in, at least so many hours after work. Even though that is probably illegal in most places, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's going to do anything about it 
until you have the money to sue. With a collective bargaining agreement, you have clear, defined lines about many of your working conditions. In the private sector, it's specifically required that they bargain with you over wages, hours, and working conditions. In Ohio, the law is also the same. And so you could say bargain over your pay. You can bargain over if you work in a higher classification. You can bargain over your health care. You can bargain over a grievance process if they breach the contract. There are just any number of things that it is mandatory that they bargain with the union over. And you can basically get your needs met or get the status quo that you have right now put into writing where if they try to change it, you have recourse to stop that. Okay, so it's a contract between the workers collectively through the union and with the employer. Yep. It's not just an agreement either. It is a legal document with the force of law. Okay. And this would be like, for example, you were talking about how the employer one day rolls out updates to their policies and procedures, and they say, from now on, this is the new rule, and you have to sign this and agree to it. And if you don't, then you're out of work. And you don't really have an option there other than to leave the job to negotiate that. It's just a unilateral, this is how it is. Whereas you couldn't, as the employee, go to your employer and say, you know what, I want to change this and I'm going to make it this way. And so you need to agree to this as my employer and this is how it's going to be. Like You don't have that power as an individual employee. But when you have that bargaining collective where the majority of people are in that union and we're all saying, this is how it's going to be, now you have at least power to negotiate. You might not get what you want or everything that you want, but it's not as easy to dismiss as an individual employee. You know, you could be able to somehow leverage whatever skills that you have to get certain working conditions for you. Or if you're a really good butt kisser, you may be able to be the exception to the rule. But the difference between when you have a union and you don't have a union, one big part of that is as soon as you have a union contract, you're under what's called just cause discipline. Your ability to go to your employer and say, I think that this change in the personnel policy is unfair is actually protected activity. If you're speaking with the union, there's actually recourse under the NLRA for whether or not your employer can take any action against you for that. Without a union, you're at will. They can fire you for anything unless you can prove that it's some sort of discrimination. You're just way more protected under the union. Your ability to advocate for not only yourself, but your fellow workers right next to you is way stronger. Pretty much what you can do as an individual, you can still do. But you can do a heck of a lot more if you're with a union. Right. You would just have more leverage. Way more leverage. It's just the old stick analogy. You know, what's easier to break? One stick or a whole pile bundle? Of stick? Yeah, big bundle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're kind of getting into the next bullet point, which is why would you possibly want to join a union? I want to start this off by being very honest. I did not vote for Biden in the primary. He was not my first pick. He wasn't my second pick. He wasn't my third pick. I wasn't really thinking that he was going to do anything that was going to be life-changing. I mean, I've met the man in person. As a matter of fact, he gave me a bear hug one time because I was able to get him an RV. I had heard that he was very pro-union, 
but I didn't see anything under the Obama administration that he had done that was really, really pro-union. Then LRB then was not what it was. But today, it's amazing. If you are in the private sector, the Biden NLRB is kicking ass for unions right now. The things that come out weekly are things that I wish in my head, like I wish that this would happen. Just one big example. You have to file to get a union and you have to have majority support. So it used to be that that meant you automatically had to have an election. So now the rule has changed to where you may still need to have an election, but that's only specifically if the employer says that they wanna have an election. The other huge organizing piece, which I cannot emphasize enough, if the employer during that vote from when they request a vote for the union, from the point when you file for it to when the election is finally decided, if the employer commits what's called an unfair labor practice, and that can be any number of things that would undermine the process of voting, you automatically get a union. And so the thing that normally happens during any organizing campaign is the employer does every single thing that they possibly can to stop that union from even getting certified. This puts a giant kick in their butt to say, if you go that route, you automatically get a union. That's huge. If they fire you for your union activity, which a lot of the groups that are in the private sector now, a lot of them, the main thing that I've heard from folks who are like, yes, I'd love to organize, but blah, 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 tried to organize back in 2006. They fired everybody. It totally destroyed the whole campaign. It would never happen. If you fire somebody for union activity, not only are you able to get to a hearing pretty darn fast and without all the delays, but you can now also sue the employer, not only for your back wages, but let's say as a result of you losing your job, you lost a car or you lost a house and there are other material damages. For the first time, you can actually sue them for those as well, which is a huge deterrent for an employer. If you're making 10 bucks an hour and you're working 40 hours a week, it's 400 before taxes. But if you lose a house and it's a $200,000 house, that's 200,400. Your likelihood that you're gonna come back is gonna be months. It's probably more like 230,000, 240,000. It's just going to be a heck of a lot more of a hit for them to take if they start attacking you for union activity. So it is just way easier to get into a union and the protections are getting better every single day. It's also in the public sector. It has traditionally been easier to get certified into a union and then get a first contract in the public sector. Part of this is that everything that is done in the public sector, for the most part, has some sort of sunshine law so that you can get at whether or not they're sending emails disparaging the workers, whether or not they're claiming that they don't have money. You can do a public records request to find out how much money they actually do have, whether or not they're being honest. And then a lot of the laws for the public sector and the federal government has passed and that states have passed. It's just much easier to hold them accountable. You also have the right to be treated fairly at, at your workplace, just like in the private sector. And a lot of these private sector laws will actually follow what the NLRB is doing. So what the NLRB do, is doing will help a lot of these folks.
but you also have the same power as you did before there was a law, which is your labor. And I mean, something I want public sector folks to think about, and I hope some of those folks that are in the private sector that, you know, may think, what has the government done for me? I represent both public and private entities. I always come back to the water and sewer workers. You literally cannot go one day without being touched by water and sewer workers in some way. I mean, you literally probably woke up this morning, you went to the bathroom, your toilet hopefully flushed down and did not shoot back on you. That's because we have a system that goes through every single city that makes sure that not only are you able to go to the bathroom and not have to walk outside and smell that, but it's getting cleaned, it's getting put up back into the system, it's working. If you drank water from a fountain, in a lot of cases, if you drank bottled water, it's from one of these water and sewer plants who have just done a fantastic job. I mean, I don't know if, if anybody remembers playing Oregon Trail, if I got any folks from the 80s, any elder millennials, but dysentery is generally what you died from. Dysentery is drinking bad water. And so folks like that and all the other support folks, the folks that are fixing potholes, you all deserve to be represented just as much as the private sector and every single thing that the private sector can do, you should be doing as well. One of the biggest things that I think about the union that I've come up in, we were there with Dr. Martin Luther King organizing the sanitation members in Memphis, Tennessee, who were fighting both civil rights and a union rights battle. If they can do it, you can do it. Yeah, it really is kind of amazing the way that civil rights and union rights, workers' rights were intertwined and how those battles were simultaneously fought. I have to say, man, something that I always think about, it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to a conservative, a liberal, middle of ground person, anybody, every single person deserves some sort of respect for the work that they do. One of the groups that I have is a hospital, and I was just talking to somebody today about this. The people who clean the hospital tend to be the lowest paid, but if you want to know who is the most essential at that place to making sure that your stay there is going to be pleasant, it's the people who are going to make sure that your room's clean. It's the people who are going to prepare your food. Them just having the dignity to be able to say, no, this isn't right or, hey, these working conditions don't work, it makes a huge difference for them to be able to stand up. Just the dignity of being able to fight back when somebody does something wrong. Both private and public sector have some things that are definitely very much the same. They both have collective bargaining agreements, which outline clear guidelines. They outline hours of work, overtime, pay, and working conditions in writing. Those rules are grievable for both parties. Normally, they have some form of legal authority. Normally, they're binding on both parties, which means for the most part, those once you know you win through the grievance process, you're not very likely to have to go back to the drawing board and win again. Your rules can be imposed upon the employer, even if they're not written down. There are things called a past practice. If you've been given a grace period to come in five minutes late, for the past three years, the employer can't just decide, well, now I'm going to start implementing our tardy system and everybody's going to have to be here exactly on time. 
if they've let it go, that's a precedent called past practice. And that's something that they have to bargain with you over before they change it. That's a history and that's a legal precedent. The other thing is you've actually agreed to the things that are in your collective bargaining agreement. So I try to do a lot of convincing when I'm trying to get a contract with an employer. I'm trying to get proposals. I hope every staff rep out there does this. I don't know every staff rep. I just know what I do. And most of us are really looking at what is going on with this company or what is going on with this public entity and saying, what is fair for us and what have they done for management? Something I think about with the UAW battle right now. Sean Fain has said that he is fighting for a 40% because CEOs have gotten a 40% over the past decade. Why don't workers deserve that same sort of percentage increase that those at the top deserve? And as a matter of fact, a lot of these contracts are based on looking at CEO contracts from the early 19th century and saying, well, why do they have just cause, but us who are down here doing the work don't have just cause? We're trying to make sure that the working class and the ruling class are as similar as they can possibly be, and the fair shake that they get is the same fair shake you're going to get. The biggest thing, though, is just by being in a union, you're likely to be safer, better off financially, and your employer is way, way more likely to follow the law. And if they don't, you have recourse. Something I think about all the time is FMLA. I've done a couple of new contracts and I've talked to folks and I've explained to them what the FMLA law is. That's the Family Medical Leave Act. And what that does is it ensures that if you have a serious health condition, if you've worked at your employer for a year, you've worked 1,250 hours and your employer has 50 or more employees, then you're eligible for 12 weeks of paid or unpaid leave. And so if you have a serious health condition, that's anything that lasts over three days, let's say you got the flu, that would actually constitute for a serious health condition if it lasted over three days and you would have protections under that FMLA to take that time off paid or unpaid. Having somebody there who knows what the law is and who knows what working conditions are supposed to be. I mean, a lot of these folks, they're working two jobs. They don't have time to think about, oh, let me look up on the internet what FMLA law is. They probably have thought about nothing but going home and getting some rest or getting some time to themselves finally to do something they wanna do, play a video game, play some music, listen to music, watch a TV show. Unions are here to make sure that you don't have to worry about that stuff and that we can figure it out together. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I wanted to touch on a few things that you had said about the dignity of workers. One of the things that I've noticed is how in our society we are trained to value ourselves based on our jobs. So 
I saw this thread recently where there was somebody posting that a particular fast food restaurant was paying workers $21 an hour. And somebody was like, wow, well, then, you know, nurses should be making a lot more than they are. And somebody else was advocating for like certified nursing assistants. And somebody was trying to justify the pay disparities by saying, well, you know, the doctors make more because they have more liability and more risk. What they're doing is more important. And someone pointed out, no, actually, it's the person that touches the patient most who has the potential to do the most damage. The doctor probably goes in and in some situation like this does the surgery. But then after that, you have all of this ongoing patient care that is in the hands of somebody who's not paid near as much as that doctor, but who is going to be working with that patient for a much longer period doing more procedures there wasn't any real justifications for the, you know, why do I make more? There are some people who feel like, well, I do art and that's like this lofty job. And so what I'm doing should not be replaced by a machine like an AI, whereas you have somebody else who's out picking fruit and then there's a cherry picker gets invented and it's like that becomes mechanized. And well, that's okay because that's just manual labor. So that job can be replaced and that's no problem. But my job is more lofty. And so we have this weird like hierarchical thinking about the value of the person, the value of the job, without really understanding that all of it needs to get done. Like you said, if nobody's taking the biohazard waste out of that hospital on the daily, you're going to have a big problem really quickly. And the hospital is going to become a very dangerous place if you don't have sanitation dealt with. People think of the sanitation as somehow less than. Do you understand what I'm saying? I 100% do. I think that part of what the folks who want to exploit workers want you to believe is that depending on the job you have, you either do or don't deserve a living wage. Anybody who's been a part of the union movement will recognize this analogy, but the way that they sort of get us is, say you got a cookie jar, you got 12 cookies in that cookie jar, you got some employer who comes along, grabs 11 of those cookies, there's one left, he looks at the guy next to you, or the woman next to you, and he says, you better get that one cookie before he takes it from you, and then we fight each other instead of looking at each other to say, why does that guy have 11 cookies? He doesn't need 11 cookies. If he gave us one of those cookies, then we'd have two cookies, then we wouldn't have to fight over anything. This gets to another point that I was going to make, which is you'll see somebody say, if we pay these people who are flipping burgers a living wage, then I'm going to have to pay eight bucks for a hamburger. When I thought about it in terms of what I was hearing in the conversation, you can go and look at the company profits and see that they're raking in profits. Like even in a year where profits are quote down, they're still pulling in billions. And so I look at this and it's like, well, no, they could subsidize the cost of that wage through taking less profit, right? I mean, it would be very simple. They take less profit. The person gets paid more. The burger price stays the same. This isn't hard. They're still going to make a billion dollars. There's not really any pressing need to raise the price to compensate the worker when you have billions of dollars worth of profit happening. There's billions of dollars there to pull from, 
to keep the cost of the burger down and to pay the worker and for people to still make a decent hefty profit. It's just this exploitation of wanting to maximize the profit to where they're not willing to let go of the extra money in order to pay someone a living wage and make the product affordable. It's not that they can't do it. It's that they're not going to touch those profits. So they're going to raise the cost of that burger to pay the worker more because they don't want to touch their own profits, which they don't really need. I mean, if you're going to make a profit, and this isn't to demonize everybody who makes a profit, because I think it's fine to make a profit within reason. But if you're going to make a profit, you either have to devalue the product or you have to devalue the labor. And so what the practice has been in my lifetime is they've devalued the labor. Something just to think about. You can look this up. It's called the Big Mac Index. So Denmark, now this discussion that I had was probably about four years ago. Their average wage for fast food workers was $21 an hour. That was plus benefits and plus retirement. In some parts of America, you could get a Big Mac for a little bit less than the average price of the Big Mac in Denmark, or a lot more of the price of a Big Mac in Denmark. And the reason why that is, is because they got more of their labor valued, less profit went to the big boss who wasn't doing anything, but just sitting back and making money off devaluing the labor of the people that work for. I mean, most of us, we want to be working to live versus living to work, but a lot of us have been convinced that we have to be living to work because that is the way to prosperity, but it's really not. I mean, there are folks out there who are literally doing nothing and making more money than other people who are working their butts off. Think about those folks, again, going back to the hospital. A lot of them have two jobs. Some of them have three jobs. A lot of these folks that we represent in the arts sector, they have two and three jobs, and they're trying to be artists at the same time. There is no one working harder than them out there. Yet their wages are paid at such an amount that they're never going to get ahead. I mean, I looked up the average rent price for the city of Cincinnati. Austin has this beat. I think you guys were 48% last year and your rent price is going up. So sorry to hear that. That is horrible. We went up 32%. The average price of a place to rent in Cincinnati is $1,300 for an 886 square foot apartment. Those are the average prices. That means that you would have to make $32.50 to pay a quarter of your income in order to live somewhat comfortably in Cincinnati. Now, we've raised our minimum wage at some of the larger workplaces here to $20 an hour to $18 an hour, but that's nowhere near the $32.50 that you would need to be able to live on your own comfortably without roommates, without a significant other, just to get by. It's ridiculous. They've convinced us that we just need to work hard when in reality we need to work smart and we need to make sure that we're getting paid and that we're working to live and not living to work. One of the other problems is the cost of education that has happened, right? So now you have people that have invested all this time and money into what ultimately is just a job preparation, then they're getting out into the market and 
they feel like they need to make more money because they spent a bunch of money to get this degree to get a job that they feel should pay more so that they can pay off these loans. There's this viciousness to it. Like you were talking about Denmark, and I don't even have to Google. I can tell you without even Googling that there's going to be a better education system going on there than what we're doing here with people going into tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for a college education. Part of what worked during the 60s and the 70s is we built a system of education that was free to everyone that bettered our society because what you did is you got basic skills that led you to provide more to the country as a whole through our collective education. I think what we've gotten into now is there are a lot of folks that have used the education system to exploit and make money off people versus trying to use the education system what it was meant for. The education system has never been meant to be about profit. It's been meant to be about bettering everyone so that we can get a fairer shake. I can't say there's one reason why education has gone up, but I can say the erosion of public sector education and the lack of public sector higher education at an affordable rate is just a tragedy. And it's also something that should make you consider whether or not you want to go into a trade. I'm not personally someone who came from one of the trade unions, but I can tell you that I know a lot of those folks and they're paying you to learn a trade instead of you paying them. I know a plumber and pipe fitter who went from making $17 an hour to making $42 an hour within five years once they became a certified journeyman with the Plumber and Pipe Fitters Union. And they don't have any student debt. They don't have anything but a good job with good benefits, good pay, and a journeyman's license. You don't have to necessarily go and get an education to make sure that you succeed. And honestly, I don't know unless they do something about higher education. I don't think a lot of people are going to continue to do that. I am super, super thankful that I went and got a bachelor's degree. Funny enough, I'm in a union, but I got a bachelor's degree in business. <laughs> but that business degree has helped me get into the minds of the folks who are across the table in a way that is super, super helpful. But I was lucky enough to have the post 9-11 GI Bill, which not only paid me to go to school, but it also paid for all of my school but one semester. That one semester, though, was $12,000 that I had to pay back. It's ridiculous. Well, while we were talking here, while you were explaining that, I went ahead and Googled study in Denmark or college in Denmark to see what it is. And higher education in Denmark is free for students from the EU or the EEA, which is like an extension of the EU area for economic borders, and Switzerland. And then if you're outside of that and you want to come and study there, then you have to pay. But that's the thing. It's like here in the U.S., we're not giving away college. And we should be because, frankly, it's better for us. Well, I mean, it yeah, it benefits. It, it's, a, it's, an in, it's an investment for sure. I don't understand why we don't treat it like civil service, why we don't pay people to go to college. And then when they get out of college, let them do two to four years in public sector, let them do some public sector work to sort of pay back the tuition. You know what I mean? So we pay for the college, just like we would pay for somebody being in the military. 
And then when they get done with the studies, they invest back by doing public service for like two to four years. And then they're free to go off into the private sector, or pursue whatever they want. I, I don't understand why that's so hard. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. You definitely got me on that one. <laughs> I definitely believe that there are folks out there who are scared of education because education makes a huge difference. When I think about it in the context of unions, I was talking about FMLA. There's FMLA, there's ADA, there's your rights under just cause versus at will. The more educated you become on this, you don't necessarily even need a, a degree. But part of what we do is constantly train our members to know this is a red flag from an employer. If they're asking you to stay over 40 hours and they're not paying you overtime, they're stealing your wages. If they are making you stay an extra half an hour unpaid and you didn't get a lunch, they're stealing your time. All those things make a huge difference for workers. I just got a first contract for a place where they had been stealing their wages by not giving them lunches and making them work a half an hour extra for years. They're still doing it for the unorganized folks. And they, they had no idea that there was a wage theft law for the city of Cincinnati. They had no idea that there's a federal wage theft law. They had no idea that they had recourse to all these things. And these are educated folks who they felt like something was wrong, but they had no idea what to do. And I do think education scares a lot of people. If you look at the history of education, especially higher education, not not only higher education, though, like even basic literacy, if you look at our laws, like historically around that, you don't gatekeep something unless you're trying to maintain your privilege. So when I pass a law that says I don't want people that are enslaved to be able to read, it's because I'm afraid of letting them read. And when you pass laws or when you have a setup that says women can't attend college or people who aren't white can't attend college, or you're definitely trying to bar people from something that you want to reserve for yourself as a benefit to yourself. So I think, yes, there's no question that education scares some people because if everyone has it, then it's no longer an edge for those who do. So where are we at on this agenda? What is the basic makeup of a union? Now, again, I, I don't know of every union, but for the most part, I can look up most unions on the DOL website. Most of these elements are going to be the same for any union that you join, but there's going to be small differences for all unions as well, uh, more than likely, just because we all have a different history. So this is mostly going to be like my union experience and what should likely be your union experience. The first part of that is just like the U.S. has a constitution, your union should have a constitution. That constitution lays out the guiding principles and rules for how locals are supposed to be run. And a local union, the makeup can be different. You can have unions that are 10 people. You can have unions that are 5,000 people. You can have unions that are 1,000 people. Generally, your local union is going to be the union that is the closest to you. They may or may not have a number, you know, like local 75, local, you know, 1768, those sort of numbers. And then it'll have your union, whatever your union is, and the acronym for that. That constitution actually tells you your rights as a member normally. It tells you what sort of things your officers should be doing. 
It tells you what sort of rights you have if you wanted to call a meeting. It's basically the first place that you should look if you want to figure out what rights you as a union member have with your union, not necessarily in your employer. The setups of most unions, if you've never dealt with a union, but you've dealt with maybe some of these community organizations, it's very similar to like a Moose Lodge or an Eagles Lodge. There are generally at least four what we call table officers who run a local union. Those include a president. The president is going to be the leader. They're going to be the first person union members and management should call if there's an issue. The person who runs all the union meetings, but they can also be held accountable. <laughs> and uh, most of these meetings are run by what's called Robert's Rules. There's a vice president. That's the second in command normally. And they usually fill in for the president as needed. There's a recording secretary. That's the person who's going to keep what's called the minutes to your meeting. Normally, most union meetings require that you keep minutes of all the actions that you've done, any money that you've spent, any proposals from the floor for things that the union should do. And if you're attending a union meeting, you as a member, as long as you're paying dues, you normally have a right to push that meeting agenda. The recording secretary may also craft local communications, and they normally keep non-financial records of the local. You also have a secretary treasurer. The secretary treasurer is going to be the person who keeps the financial records for the local. They should normally give you a financial report, which is going to tell you where the union's finances are currently, where they were prior to the last meeting, and where it looks like any upcoming spending is going to go. And they also keep all the records of your finances. They also would be somebody who would sign a check. You usually would have two people signing a check if you're going to spend money. They're basically the money person. These table officers, they would usually be at union meetings, which is a huge part of a union. This is also something that, I'll be honest, we've struggled with as a union movement. I'm pretty happy that one of the effects of the last couple of years has been that we've sort of embraced Zoom meetings for the first time. That means everybody doesn't generally have to be in person. You can figure out, well, hey, if you can't attend this meeting in person, you can get online, you can hop online, everybody can get on, and you can have a meeting. A lot of unions hold monthly meetings. Some hold quarterly meetings. Some require you to be there in, in person to participate, but like I just said, a lot have moved to things like Zoom, Meetup, or other electronic means. These officers are elected officers, right? So everybody in a union has to follow their direct democracy model. So they are all elected. Yes, normally the president, the vice president, the recording secretary, and the secretary treasurer are all elected. And who you elect can very much matter. One of the things that I push for with each one of my unions is you don't only try to be diverse amongst the workers in your union, along racial lines, along cultural lines, along whatever lines you have at your workplace, but you also, if you're gonna be a leader in the union movement, you wanna try to make sure that you get as many of the positions and departments and places that make up your union to be represented by your board. Now, there aren't just these four table officers, depending on how big your union is. You can have as many as 14, even heard of some unions who have 15. 
of those officers, the more people that you can get involved, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you are representing everybody or as many people as you possibly can in each group within your employer, the better. But yes, they are normally elected. Okay, so just to kind of recap and see if I'm on this. So the contract is between the union as the collective and the employer, and the Constitution runs the union for the workers and the union. Well, it gives you the basic rules, just like right. It, it's sort of how the union runs. Yep. And then you have your elected representatives that are here, and then at some point before all this even gets started, the collective of workers has a vote where they decide whether or not to even have the union. Is that right? That is spot on. Okay. All right. I'm following. See, I'm paying attention. <laughs> um, okay. So that that's that's to sort of recap it in my head and also for anybody that's listening because i know this is kind of dense stuff right it's sort of very very technical dense like this is it runs like this and runs like that but i mean basically that's what we're saying is that the workers get together they hold a vote whether or not they're going to have a union if they vote for a union they do put a contract in place with their employer they set up a constitution within their own union and then they elect their leadership and officers and now you've got your union set up and so the next thing we're looking at here is. I was going to go through some of the things that make for a good union. Okay, let's talk about good unions. In my view, the principal guiding factor in a well-run union is a strong emphasis on the direct democracy of unions. Generally, meetings are run by what's called Robert's Rules of Order, and there are a ton of rules. You can look up, though, and get a little summary of that. If you look up things like how to run a union meeting or how to be a member and what your rights are at a union meeting, and that'll give you some basic things that you can do. Even though there's a president, there's a vice president, there's a recording secretary, and there's a secretary treasurer, at the end of the day, what matters is that the workers drive the agenda. And so when you go to a union meeting, if that union meeting is being run fairly, you have a voice to speak. So let's say, for example, we have an upcoming negotiation. We've already gotten a couple of contracts. We're working on what's called a successor contract, which means the first contract has been ratified by the membership, which means it's in place. You've gone and gotten another contract, which is improved upon that contract. You've gotten another contract, which is approved upon that contract. And you are going into negotiations at the end of the year because your contract is going to expire. And you have a president who is a part of the largest group of your workplace. And he says, here's what I think we should do. We should get big raises for everybody in my section, and we should get one and two percent increases for everybody else. Now, what do you think about that? You think that sounds fair, Tracy? No, it, okay. not especially especially if I'm in the one or two percent. So I don't think it sounds fair either. Right. Um, part of this, though, is that you have to pay attention, just like in any democracy, any republic democracy. If you're not paying attention, the wrong people can get in power and the wrong things can happen. You as a union member have the ability to go to a union meeting and say no. 
That is not what we want to do. I pay dues. Here is what I propose. The proposals put on the table are across the board, 3% for everybody, across the board, 5% for everybody. And then you discuss it out. There may actually legitimately be a reason why that larger group is more likely to get a bigger increase than everybody else. One of the things that we've had to do sometimes as labor reps is look at the business end of it. If the membership is not motivated, and that means we have to look at comparables. And if the comparables say these folks in this group are underpaid by 10 bucks an hour and everybody else is paid pretty darn well or above what the quote unquote market is paying, you may end up there, but you get a voice to discuss that out and your leaders should be telling you why they're doing these things. And so your meetings give you a chance to come and say, why are you doing this? And then we don't want that to happen. We want this to happen. And all people who pay dues are supposed to be given the opportunity to participate through proposals, through agenda submissions, and through voicing their concerns at these meetings. You don't just have to also wait until the monthly meeting. Most of these constitutions also allow you as a union member to call a special meeting, which is why if you are joining a union or if you're part of a union now, you should be asking your union for a copy of their constitution. And you shouldn't just ask for the local constitution. You should also ask for a statewide constitution. You should also ask for an international constitution. It's not just the union who's doing the work here because the union isn't me. The union isn't those four table officers. The union is you as a member of a union. And so the more involved you are, the more likely that union is going to succeed. Just an example, though, something that you could do, let's say, if you go to a meeting. You have sat through the meeting. They call, does anybody have anything they want to say from the floor? They recognize you. You want to make a proposal. If you have gotten the basics of Robert's Rules of Order, then you know how to make a proposal. You know what sort of discussion you're going to go through, and then you know whether or not there's going to be an up or a down vote. Okay. You make a proposal, you have that happen, you win the vote. Your leadership should be following the rules of your constitution. And you can hold them accountable if you've read each one of those documents and you should know what the recourse is when they don't follow what you're asking. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it, the more informed you are about your constitution and about the rules that you're union is supposed to be following, the better advocate you are for yourself. And actually, the better your union is going to be. Because the thing that is the hardest, is the hardest, is people are so being run around right now. They got way more than one job. They got two jobs. They got a partner. They've got kids. They've got all these different obligations. And we're trying to get their attention. And it's hard. And it's hard for good reason, because it's hard for working people right now. But if you can get the education, not only are you as a union member going to be better, but your union is going to be better. And if your leadership isn't following these sort of rules, you should make them. <laughs> and that'll get better for everybody.
Right, because in the end, this is your union. Something to think about, though, aside from holding your own union accountable, is also who you're likely to see every day. There's those four table officers who may or may not be in your section of the workplace, especially if you have a larger workplace. But there's also sometimes elected positions. For most of the union experiences that I've had, they're appointed positions. But there's something called a union steward. They are the person you're going to go to if you've read the contract, your employer has done something that is contrary to the contract, and you need to find somebody to guide you through that process. And so generally, every single division or department where you work with a union should have at least one steward. Although it is a topic of negotiation for these contracts, and I will say you don't always get what you should have. You get what you can get the employer to agree. But if you can, you should have a steward in each one of your divisions or departments. If you go to them, they should know how to talk to management about your particular issue. They should be able to answer basic questions about your union contract. They should be trying to also make sure that everyone who's eligible for the union benefits is a union member. And they should be informing people of when and where union meetings are and when they're happening. They're kind of like the foot soldier of the union, as an analogy. You may also run into, if you're going through the grievance process or if you're going to meetings, a chief steward. A chief steward is generally going to be somebody who's a more senior steward. Sometimes this can actually also be like the vice president or the president, or it may be a completely separate position. They're going to be somebody who's going to be like a steward, but they're going to know a heck of a lot more than up above them, who you probably won't see too much unless you have a serious issue, but who you may run into who's a part of the grievance process, who's a part of the organizing process, and who's normally a, a big part of negotiations, is you'd see somebody who's a staff rep. They're either called like a staff representative, staff rep for short, a business agent, a field representative. There's also uh, organizing representatives. There's field organizers. The basic of what they are is there are people who are over multiple unions who are generally doing the higher level work. Like there's a few steps to the grievance process. One of those steps is an arbitration. I know arbitration may have some bad connotations to folks depending on where they're coming from because some employers have exploited them. The arbitration process is a normal process for union contracts. It's actually why folks who are not traditionally legally trained, like have gone to law school and have their JD, are able to argue on behalf of workers in such a way that they can go to a place where you can get binding recourse um, without being required to be a lawyer. And those are the basics of the people who you're likely to see and to meet. I wanted to go back and just touch base on the idea of you pay your dues and so you get this say. There was some legislation, I remember talking about this in one of my prior episodes, where they gutted the dues requirement. Today, it's not required that you pay your dues and join the union. And as a worker, if you work at a place where there is a union, you don't have to join, you don't have to pay dues, but you will still benefit from the union activity. Yep. That's actually what that is called, is called a right to work law. 
And so in the public sector, there was a ruling called the Janus decision, which made all public sector workers right to work. But in the private sector, it's state by state, whether or not you can have mandatory dues for receiving the benefits or not. If you hear unions saying this is a right to work state, what that means is in the private sector, they can reap the benefits without paying their part through union dues. And what was interesting to me about that was that you talked a little bit about how you have to kind of devalue your materials or devalue your labor in order to make a profit. Mm -hmm. So a company will basically be skimming off of each worker's wage to create a profit margin, which they can then use to lobby for more power over their company that may reduce the power of the worker, right? So I can go as a company, take my profits and pay somebody to help me lobby my politicians to make my company more powerful so that I have more rights and can exploit my workers even more. Yep. And so my workers don't really get a choice in that, again, unless they want to go leave and work for someone else if they want to lose their job. But if they want to continue to work for me and pay a wage, I actually can get them to, in essence, pay me to go and advocate for their exploitation. But what the law did to the unions was say, we're not going to make it a requirement for workers to join to pay into their own advocacy. It was kind of a way to strike a blow to the unions to where it made things a little bit harder than financially for them to pull the funding and pull the resource and pull the membership that would be required to advocate fully. But in the meantime, the employer still retained that legal right to that exploitation that allows them to exploit fully so that they can then go advocate for themselves. I mean, the I'm not even going to call them the ruling class. The exploitation class knows that this is a resource battle. The more people that are involved in the union movement, the more money that's able to be generated to fight for worker rights, the less likely they are to succeed. They know that we have the people. We generally don't have the money. It's almost always a shoestring budget to do a heck of a, of a lot of the things that we do. And I mean, it's long hours. It is a lot of boots on the ground. It is a lot of calls for people to do things. And there can be a bit of a passion tax on all of us in here because most of us, we're doing this for the right reasons. I mean, I'm not going to be a millionaire. I'm not going to be a billionaire. I'll be able to retire with dignity, thankfully. But that's not even everybody in the union movement. I mean, there are folks out there working 60 hours trying to get these contracts, trying to get these folks organized, paying out of their pockets to drive halfway across the country just so that workers can get a fair shake. I have been super, super lucky that I have been at the right place at the right time to make some fantastic decisions to get some amazing things done for workers as a union rep. But even when I've done my best, there are some people who are convinced that getting the benefits without paying for them is okay because they're getting over on somebody 
or they maybe have something that they didn't like that the union did or for any number of reasons. But the reality is, and this is a hard reality, everybody who's in a union who doesn't pay dues is taking away resources from the people who want to make their life better. That's all I want to do. That's all anybody who I know in the labor movement wants to do. And look, <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to pay more if they don't have to. But you have to decide what the right thing is. And I mean, I pay dues to multiple unions. And that's because I know my money is going to the right place at a time when there are tons of places that we don't have a choice but to pay. I know that the one place that I can contribute to is my union and that even when I disagree with them, and believe me, in the labor movement, especially when you're at my level, there is a lot of disagreement, but everybody's heart is in the right place. All of us, every single one of us are trying to make sure people get a fair shake. At the end of the day, if that's something you can't get behind, I'm more sorry for you that you don't want a better life for those around you. And I hope that one day all those folks will wake up and realize that this is a tool being used by the people who don't want your life to get better. For all of this effort, you're still going up against some mighty resource-heavy entities who are doing everything they can to make sure it doesn't work, like fighting I mean, you every step of the way. I'm glad to not be facing down the barrel of a gun from Pinkerton, but it's still not easy. There was before and there is now hundreds of agencies out there that, if they could, would take us back to the worst possible working conditions. Yeah, there. seven days a week, 12-hour days, child labor. I mean, there's, they're going for child labor now. They're not even being quiet about it. They're saying it on national television. It's really interesting because they're saying, well, these kids need to work because they need to help their families because they're poor. Like, instead of saying, why do we have people in poverty in the U.S. that we feel like the solution is to make children work to contribute to their family and not to make sure that families are not in poverty, that they're not losing homes, that they have food access. Like, this is really, really... I've had to really come to grips, and this is kind of like a weird sideline, but I've had to really come to grips now with the nonprofit industrial complex, right? This whole concept of oh, charity, because we are so ingrained in the idea of charity. And I have sat on the boards of charitable organizations. And now I look at it and I see like a St. Jude ad. And I used to think to myself, well, this is great that this charity exists and that they're there to help these children with cancer and pay the bills for their family. Like that's that's great so that these people don't have to go into, you know, huge amounts of debt to save their child who might die. And now I whenever I see a charity like that, I think this is just a symptom of our broken system that we live in a nation where we don't think it's worthwhile to spend tax dollars on making sure that children with cancer have access to health care. They have to go to a charity because as a nation, we won't do it. We won't take care of our own citizens. Uh, I can't see a charity ad anymore without thinking there's just one more problem 
with our government system that we will not use the system we have in place to take care of our citizens as citizens isn't that what it's supposed to be the centralized government that like actually we use to ensure the security and the safety and the well-being of ourselves through this collective and apparently there's a lot of people or a lot of power or a few powerful people enough to persuade enough people to make it a fight to just give people access to healthcare for their children, being able to pay for housing, being able to have food security. Like we can't even do that. And when you're fighting this battle to say, let's give people a decent wage, let's give them, you know, decent benefits, whatever it is that we feel like these companies need to be supplying, which part of this to me is like, maybe some of this stuff should be shouldered by the government. Maybe instead of companies giving us healthcare benefits, we should ask, why is my company involved in my healthcare? Why don't we just have I go to the doctor and this is covered like a lot of other countries do, right? There's so much of this that's just such a mess. And right now you're saying the battle that I'm fighting, that I, Mark Cato, am fighting is the one that says all the workers have a right to a living wage to be able to work with dignity, to not be so exploited that they're doing nothing but working just to get by. And I just want people to be able to work and enjoy their lives and do a good job and feel supported in their in their work. And you have employers who, as you say, they make it difficult for you as much as they can because they're not allowed anymore to literally hire guns to intimidate you. Yep. And they exploit every way possible that they can. Not every employer is the same, but I've never tried to get, for example, a first contract for any group and it not be a long drawn out process there be ridiculous objections to people being in the union one of the starkest things that really gets me i didn't plan on talking about this but i think it's a perfect example i was trying to get a first contract for a group of part-time firefighters who were making 13 dollars an hour the rep that they hired on the employer side for this town that, look, I grew up poor, and so this is not disparaging people who are in trailers, but most of this town was trailer parks. They were not a rich town. Their employer rep drove up in a Porsche. They were paying that guy probably $200 to $450 an hour to go up against me, who, you know... <laughs> I'm just trying to get a first contract for firefighters getting paid $13 an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And they're making it a battle. They're making it a David and Goliath cage match. I got a first contract and I was successful, but I am just now today. This was six years ago to the point where I've gotten them to a decent living wage over years and multiple contract battles. As a union rep on this side, you can't just do one contract and look at it and there it goes in a vacuum. I had to have a six-year plan of multiple contracts, multiple organizing campaigns across multiple different cities, across multiple different counties, and 
pull that all together in such a way that it wasn't just this one city that got pushed up. It was this one city and every other city around it so that I could make the argument that the pay of this one group was still too low. And I'm not driving a Porsche, okay? And I will not be that person who rides a Porsche because frankly, it's disgusting that somebody would get paid that much to try and keep firefighters who are making $13 an hour from making a living wage. It really is disgusting. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> uh, if, we, if we haven't brought you down by now. Can I, can I end on a good note? Yeah, please do. So the average wage of part-time firefighters in the greater Cincinnati area, when we started organizing was $14 an hour. Today, it's $22 an hour. That's six years of time. That's five different groups getting organized. That's literal data from a local municipality who was taking a look at every other fire department in Southern Ohio. Just one group seven years ago deciding that they wanted to join a union brought our whole entire area up by that much money. And that's the average wage now. So, I mean, it does make a difference. That person driving a Porsche, he's still going to get paid. But you know what? We're going to get paid too when we get together. And it's going to make a difference. It may not make a difference very first contract. It may not feel like the big enough difference the second contract. But over time, you're going to win and you're going to win more and it's going to get better. And I know because I'm seeing it firsthand. I have employers right now calling me to do mid-bargaining contract raises because this area has gotten so much better. If you really seriously want things to get better, join a union. It's that simple. I'm living proof. My whole area is living proof that the more you get involved, the more you allow people to work for you, and the more we're in it for the right reason, the better things will get. We can do it. Let's say that somebody is listening to this podcast and they are thinking, my workplace sucks and I feel like where I work, we would be good candidates for union, for collective bargaining. How do they even start? I would start by looking up what union is organizing and then your job. It's that simple. I don't want to name any unions because, man, there are so many out there that I can guarantee that I won't be able to tell you all of them. But I can tell you right now, if you Google and you look up what union is organizing my job, I guarantee you will find at least one. So like somebody would type in retail cashier union. Yeah. Or um, fast food worker union. Yep. Here's something else you can do too. If you're in the private sector, you can go straight to the NLRB. And that stands for the National Labor Relations Board. They will tell you what the organizing process is. You yourself can go through and 
try to figure out how can I organize? You don't have to have somebody do it for you. I can tell you that we've got it down, you know, most of us, and that we've done some serious work. But one of the most amazing things that I saw in the past five years, I think, was the Amazon Staten Island win. The Teamsters, UFCW, a bunch of unions have been trying to organize Amazon for years. Somebody in a local workplace, though, was like, hey, look, what can I do to organize this place? And where others failed, they succeeded. Because in reality, what makes unions the strongest, what makes us powerful, isn't knowing the most. It's having the most motivated people. That's it. If you've got the will, you're going to be the one who does it. And we're just waiting on the next generation to come along and do it. And I'm hopeful. I cannot believe how fantastic these new groups that I'm organizing with are. I am so hopeful. And the same thing if you have a public sector law in your state. Look up what entity controls that. And you can figure it out yourself. You can go with the union. You can educate yourself. There's no gatekeepers to the union movement. It's only your willingness to join us and to do what you want to do to organize your workplace. The latest group that I have, I'm a traditionally cisgender white male. The next generation that is coming in are not looking like me, not having my same views, and they are pushing all of us to do better. Those are the folks who it can make the hugest difference for. I put pronouns for the first time in one of my union contracts. I had never even thought about pronouns until two years ago, until someone came to me and said, you know, Mark, you keep calling me her. I'm they, them, because, you know, I'm over 40 and I'll just be honest. I swear my heart is in the right place, but I, it's hard to adjust when you don't understand. But being around those folks and seeing them organize and watching their eyes light up, and frankly, my heart light up, as I see something that I know could change the whole landscape for people at this workplace, it's just the best feeling you could ever get. You can make that difference. It doesn't matter if there's a law out there. A union contract is what controls your workplace. That is your agreement between your employer and you. And your values and your needs, and your things that you want to see happen, that's what a union contract is. And I hear you about the younger generation. They amaze me. I mean, I'm so disheartened about like the state of the world, but I am so inspired by the up-and-coming generations, and I, I feel so bad at the legacy that they're inheriting. It's a generation of people who cares a lot more. And I hope they can retain that. Like, I hope they can maintain that, that attitude of caring about each other, caring about the globe, caring about people and being more diverse and open and willing to learn and willing to teach. I learn so much from them every day. I'm super appreciative of them, you know, as much as you're hopeful from them, <laughs> you know, not really so much for them, but from them. 
Yeah, from um, them, honestly. Yeah, and I feel like I'm also hopeful, and I just hope that they can find a way to overcome the pile of crap, really, that we have dumped in their laps. I think they can. I'm rooting for them, and I'm willing to support them. Anyway, you have things to do this evening besides just chatting with me, but I appreciate you giving me your time and giving your time to help educate people a little bit about understanding unions. Maybe now when people see things like a strike or see things like these union articles or clips on TV or on YouTube, conversations about this, they'll be a little bit more informed about what it is. Maybe some folks out there will be inspired to implement a union of their own, like in their own workplace. Some people might be inspired to join a local union that they hadn't really thought about before. So for what it's worth, here's the information for everyone. And thanks to my guest, Mark Cato, and have a great night, Mark. You too. And hey, if you're listening to this and you're in Southern Ohio and you need help joining a union, if you find me on social media and you ask for help, I'll help you. All right. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.